0: Hello and welcome to Trees of Crowd. This is David Oakes. Um, I'm currently walking through a wooded wild glade, part of the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, and it is divine. It's been raining all morning and the sun has come out. I think it's going to be out for another half hour maximum, but it means no one's here. I'm here all on my own. I've got three hours to explore the site before I get to speak to the head curator here, Helen Phoebe. It's it's absolute heaven. I can't begin to explain how much fun I'm having Hopefully some of that will come across in the interview I'm about to give you. Uh, if the weather holds, we will do a walking, talking, Terry Goff-style interview. If the weather comes back down again on us, we'll probably be in a meeting room. So in about 12 seconds, you'll find out what happened. Here you go. This is Trees of Crowd. Thanks for listening.
1: In the depth of the forest, an old oak grew, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy, her mantle through when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh.
0: Hello, I'm David Oakes, and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Inspired by beavers making dams or chefs curing hams, I get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. For this episode, I've popped off the M1 just south of Wakefield to West Breton, home of the Yorkshire Sculpture Park. Set in 500 acres of historic parkland, the YSP has provided a gallery without walls for works by artists such as Elizabeth Frink, Auguste Rodin, Giuseppe Pannoni, and local legends such as Barbara Hepworth and Henry Moore. I'm here to talk to Dr. Helen Phoebe. Helen is the head of curatorial programs here at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, but has a global creative footprint, collaborating in projects in Iraqi Kurdistan, South Africa, India, and even Barnsley. Helen, welcome to Trees a Crowd.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Um, So my first question is, I read somewhere that you were born in the Rhubarb Triangle. (laughs) What the hell is the Rhubarb Triangle? So
1: the Rhubarb Triangle, I believe, is now an EU recognised geographical space where a forced rhubarb is grown, Uh which is quite a small triangle between Pontefract and Wakefield. And I grew up in the middle of it and I grew up, there were rhubarb sheds all around, which are... So forced rhubarb is grown by candlelight. And it's uh, it means that it's the rhubarb that's the first in the season. There used to be a rhubarb express from my village train down to <laughs> London so that uh and Mason's or those very high-end retailers could get the first season of rhubarb. Sure. That has now, uh, like a lot of those kind of industries, has diminished there is no longer rhubarb express which is a shame because i could get to london very quickly if there was it but was a purple
0: train right I, I, I like,
1: i'm imagining it looked like a piece of rhubarb <laughs> i like to think that that could be what happened um but it was a very so i grew up in a very rural situation but um very much like henry moore and barbara hepworth have described actually who were both born locally it was a rural situation but surrounded by heavy industry mm-hmm. so the contrast of that was very apparent from a very early age True. And I think that leads to an appreciation of each other. I think the the contrast makes...
0: Nature versus industry. Absolutely.
1: So being driven down the M1 as a kid through Barnsley, but then seeing a kestrel on the side of a road, I think kind of makes that all the more magical.
0: Okay. I mean, we were brought up with, um, was it the Barry Hines? uh, Kes. Kes. Yeah. I think we studied that in the first couple of years at secondary school. Yeah. And, I mean, I grew up in the country anyway, so it's that thing of why should we be inspired by nature? It's everywhere anyway. Yeah. And it was lovely to see a sort of a a townie be so struck.
1: And I think for, so that era when the mines were still very active... And Henry Moore, who was born locally and who was actually the first patron of Yorkshire Sculpture Park and promised that there would always be his work here. He was was, born in Wakefield. He was born in Castleford. So Castleford is a mining town outside of Wakefield. So this area, there are a lot of large cities, but a lot of satellite towns and villages as well that all fed the industry. And he was, I think, the second youngest of eight children, born in 1898. And he was... It's been described in his biographies that it was a very poor background, but actually it was a very rich educational upbringing and social upbringing. And he had a very strong sense of social justice. And for him, access to the open air was part of social justice. So he felt it was people's right to get into the countryside. So particularly the miners Mm -hmm. who would spend most of their waking life underground it was really um his father was a co-founder of the first union of miners, mm-hmm. um and and part of that politics was very much access to nature
0: well because one of the things that i've always loved about him more than anything else is his sheep sketchbook yes which couldn't be more removed from his slightly sort of well slightly massively sexualized sort of Abstract yeah. modernist sculptures. Yeah, but you see them outside. You see the sculptures outside in a sheep meadow, which is absolutely exactly kind and, of what you're explaining.
1: And he was very keen that his large bronzes would be seen with sheep because they were the right scale to give his work monumentality. So he actually thought quite a lot about this. I, I
0: literally I've just been walking around <laughs> my mum with my mum, and I was saying that I can't take a picture of that to demonstrate what it is supposed to be because there's nothing alongside of a scale. And, and then it a sheep turns out wanders along. Among,
1: there we go. He's a genius. <laughs> yeah, and cow were too big and also cows have a very abrasive tongue which means that if they and they tend to lick sculpture sure. and dogs are too small so sheep he felt were the perfect Good foil for his sculpture. and you'll notice that um, the larger pieces are actually the patina is affected by the sheep lanolin so the sheep will run and rub around it and he was totally fine with that that's how he wanted his work to mature and he actually made a number of sculptures called sheep pieces which mm-hmm. he wanted sheep to interact with And there's a story in his diary, I think. Anyway, there's some of his writings where he's drawing the sheep outside his home in Perry Green. So although he grew up in Castleford, he then moved to London as a student Mm -hmm. and then he then moved to Perry Green when the war broke out in Much Haddam. And he would doodle, draw the sheep, um, but they used to get frustrated that they'd just kind of wander off. So he had this technique of keeping their attention, (laughs) um, which must have been quite a sight. But he was also, um, as a young man very politically radical in his views about so his use of native british stone as a sculpture material ah. as a young man as a student was a political act because up until then white greek marble or italian marble was seen to be the high point of sculpture mm-hmm. in the classical style and he rightly associated that with um, almost like a western suprematism sure. and that the ancient Greek and Roman civilizations were upheld as being the high point of civilization to which we should all aspire. And that um, this, he felt, was used uh, for empire building. So it was used to subjugate people across the world. And he was much more interested in an entire global history of object making so his work quite famously is inspired by a chuck moore figure that he saw in the trocadero museum in paris and that's a pre-columbian mayan sculpture which is a lying down figure and that's where all the reclining figures Mm. that he made came from as opposed to the more classical western style so um, i've grown up around henry moore i grew up in wakefield i used to come to the sculpture park as a kid um, so in some ways, he's felt like my sculpture granddad. Great. And then when I uh, was researching a show we did recently, and I was really understanding his early career and his childhood and his student time. You know, it's really, he was a co-founder of C&D, for example. He was a very radical person. And I guess that really is how he became so successful.
0: So... If he's sort of the grandfather for you for art yeah. and the area, and you're now here, having been here as a, as a school kid and now yeah. run the place, do you. I don't run the place. Don't run. Sorry, you're head of the cura- <laughs> curatorial <laughs> program, the word that I simply cannot pronounce. Um, do you try and manifest that socially motivated agenda? Yes, yeah, so, so
1: we see it very much as part of people's human rights, that they access creative thinking and doing and it's part of their lives. My PhD looked at public sculpture and why all art isn't considered to be public. So why isn't a public collection in a public building seen to be public art when it's all public? I read that you,
0: you referred to it as a healthy antagonist, antagonistic democracy.
1: Yes. Well, that, that's The conversation
0: I, between art and society. And
1: I think that that's a place... So I have spent quite a lot of time thinking what the place of art is in life and what our institutions are in life. And partly that's because I suppose in some ways I need to justify my life that I appreciate very much, my career that I appreciate very much. Having not gone into rhubarb, which having not gone into rhubarb, it was a dying time for the industry. (laughs) But um, it was, you know, how art. I have always had an instinct around the fact that it's not just something that's pretty and something that's decorative that you bring into people's lives when everything else is is good so I completely oppose Maslow's hierarchy of needs as it's presented in the world which is that you have you need um, a society you need health you need housing and then you have art at the top once you've got all of that and actually Maslow himself never proposed that as a pyramid in that sense he always felt that they were all interrelated and that way of thinking is now coming around so there's evidence that art in hospitals helps to speed recovery you know there's a, there's a lot of evidence that
0: Well, you were talking about um one of the new exhibitions on at the moment is the schoolroom up at the top absolutely them, which is about art and education and how yes. that helps feed the mind feeds the soul
1: if you will absolutely and this is a recreation of a castleford classroom from 1972 we have so a strong again. exactly we have a strong um relationship with the community in castleford because of the henry moore connection but also because they're doing really great grassroots work and we can help with that and we encourage people to come see the Henry Moores here so that that's opening their doors as well. But yes, I think trying to encourage people to think about a fully rounded education and it's not that everyone... If you have a creative approach to education, it's not that everyone's going to be an artist or an architect or an actor. They're going to be have a curiosity about the world and the world we're facing so many problems that may seem unsurmountable. The only mm. way we're going to solve those problems because is through...
0: artistic, abstract thought?
1: Well, through creative thinking. Mm. And if you diminish... Every child is curious, they're irritating to the extreme sometimes in wanting to know why is the sky blue, why is the grass green, why is it... And somehow that seems to get knocked out through the education system mm. in some cases. And that just seems... To be able to nurture that natural curiosity, we're going to need a generation the generations that follow us, we're going to need them to know more than we do sure. and to be problem-solving innovators. And to me, that's a fundamental part of humanity and our evolution.
0: So I get going back to you and your childhood, do you feel that that was present in your upbringing? Or what was your first memories of, of art and, I guess, the natural world? In
1: I was very fortunate, I suppose, that um, my maternal grandmother, my gran, although she was in social housing and um, was a, a long-term widow, had felt that classical music was something that she could access Mm -hmm. and that we could go to museums and galleries because they're free, you know. Um, So she very early on kind of instilled this sense in me that art and culture could be for everyone and that it didn't necessarily need to align with economic capital. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of research around cultural capital, often following the trajectory of economic capital. And she kind of demonstrated just through her life that that isn't the way it needs to be at sure. all and so I think I was just that was normal to me and then when I went to university I didn't know what to do after my degree so I studied art history because I was and philosophy uh, because I was very fortunate to be part of a generation that had free university education and, yeah, very happy to have uh, not paid a penny
0: for that <laughs> and
1: in fact I got a grant you probably got a grant I to go grant. to university you got paid to go and that meant so many things not only was that possible to go to university it was possible to study something for the joy of learning Mm -hmm. not as it being a transactional step in a capitalist society that then meant I had to earn so much to pay it back back.
0: so I guess my question then almost as if I planned it leads on to the fact that the Yorkshire Sculpture Park is free absolutely that there is no class-based structure to how you observe the pieces you roam I mean I'm I'm, I think probably answered the question what do you feel about having things outside in an open non-tiered
1: manner There is there is definitely... With sheep. Less, uh, yeah, there are definitely less barriers to coming to Yorkshire Sculpture Park than some other institutions. So there are some institutions that come to mind that I feel intimidated going to that are very imposing architecture with steps up to them and it's you have to kind of take a deep breath and brace mm. yourself to go in. Whereas here, it is much softer. But we still have a lot of work to do here and as a sector to make more people even think about coming here. So we know from non-visitor research that there are lots of people who who were on the doorstep but just don't think where for them mm-hmm. or they don't know what to wear or they don't know how to behave. They don't know who to come with. Um, and a lot of the work I do is going off-site and building friendships and building relationships and just being familiar being you know i i am then somebody who hopefully people grow to trust and if i say well maybe you might like this exhibition it's like introducing them to a mutual friend um so yeah there's still a huge amount and there's a lot of research that suggests it's class and it's money that are the biggest barriers to cultural appreciation but also to working in the arts as well and one of the cases, the, well, Henry Moore, again, is the example that I use with politicians and with policymakers, that he went from being from a very, very poor background to being either the highest taxpayer in Britain or the second highest payer. Sure. So it's not just about encouraging children to fulfil their creative ambitions. It's There's a huge economic case, because often those people who are hugely talented in the arts may be don 't succeed as quickly in maths or in English or the more what are now seen as the core subjects
0: sure um do you create art yourself?
1: I was thinking about that yesterday actually when I was watching somebody paint thinking god I haven't done that for ages um no, I used to I used to do quite a lot of textiles and fashion, but um I realized that I actually enjoyed mediating other people's art for other people more okay. um and I'd see that as. My role, perhaps, is I have the huge privilege of going to artist studios and talking to them and understanding. And obviously, the artists can't open the door up to half a million visitors a year. But hopefully, what I can do is try and share the artist's voice and intention and mediate sometimes what could seem quite challenging, abstract artworks, mm-hmm. and find a place of relevance in people's lives for them. Because there's always something, there's always a point of entry.
0: Sure. Um, to draw us a bit of a natural history keel, do you find it being... 500 acres of land, yeah. big old lakes, swans, cows, sheep,
1: yeah.
0: bluebell forests, yeah. I mean today I've seen, I saw a buzzard flying through the wild yes. woodland bit down the other side, I've seen little wild orchids growing over, it's, it's stunning. But also alongside that you see uh, the bronze tree by Ai Weiwei that's here at the moment, yes. you've got the panoni. there's a few of them I've seen dotted yes. around, the trees with river stones held yeah. up in yeah. the lofty branches. And is it Oppenheim, the weird trees yes. over there with the... Bar trees for alternative and... landscapes, That's yeah. That's the one. Yeah. Do you feel like you have to put nature things in the sculpture park?
1: No, I don't think... Um, I think that it is a strand of our programme mm-hmm. um, and it's a very vibrant strand and it's definitely, we understand that looking at art makes your eyes that much bigger and that, that then you look at the natural world and with that much more appreciation hopefully mm-hmm. that's our intention but now we have four huge Damien Hirst sculptures that are part of the Yorkshire Sculpture International which um, are equally at home in an urban setting we have Promenade by Anthony Caro who was a long time supporter of the Sculpture Park and who we worked with on a number of occasions and he was a good friend of Peter Murray who's our founding director and I know from conversations with Peter that Tony was very hesitant about putting his work in a natural landscape. So Tony was a city born and bred London dweller, thought about his sculpture in relation to an urban landscape and would often put his work... So he'd often think about them being put on roofscapes, for example. Uh And so he was um, initially not comfortable about putting a huge piece of sculpture, which had originally been designed for the Tuileries Garden in Paris, Mm -hmm. but kind of an urban design, um, here and but actually it works brilliantly.
0: Has he said what he's thought about it being his? He sense? loves it. Yeah. Okay. So
1: he um, he was delighted. In fact, it's here on a very long term loan now. So no, I think it's a strand, but it's definitely not the only strand. And we also do a lot of work with digital new media, mm-hmm. and particularly, uh, but again, kind of trying to join that back up with the natural world. So last year I did a project with Jenna Birchall, who's a South African artist, who's a very um, I mean her, she describes her medium as code so it's, it's like one of those crazy hacker programs when you see her she's just working with like lines of green okay. numbers and letters but what she wants to do is so the for example the project she did here was bought um, a brainwave reader from Amazon mm-hmm. which are actually quite cheap um, it came with a free brain controlled helicopter
0: well, all, all things should come with a free brain-controlled helicopter. Uh, and
1: then she hacked... This is a natural history podcast <laughs> when we're talking about brain-controlled helicopters. But then she hacked the device so that it turned the brainwave readings... It read seven different readings, like logic, different... And what was kind of incredible for me about seeing that visualised and then turned into sound, which she did, is you think there's something... You think there's a ghost in the machine, mm. in the human mind, in our thoughts... And our emotions and actually they're all electrical frequencies and to kind of see that is is quite kinda of makes it even more astounding that, you know, Asimov said, the brain is the most complex thing in the known universe. Sure. And it's it's there. And it it's would working. be
0: the ego of the brain to say that about itself, Absolutely. would it not?
1: <laughs> but I can't think of anything else which is more complex. You know, in but if your brain universe, could think of
0: it would it tell you or would oh, it well, keep you sitting well, there in wonder a <laughs> as it flies its helicopter around the Yorkshire Sculpture Park?
1: Um, but, so the resulting work from that was she asked a few people who'd been here a very long time to think of a strong memory of here. Mm-hmm. She then gold-plated leaves on a yew tree, one of the oldest yew trees on site, and when visitors touched the gold-plated leaf they could hear our thoughts which was a very kind of dissonant low abstract sound it wasn't Mm. harmonious and melodic but it but i think there's a a huge amount of exciting work around artists doing that and connecting technology so that we can better understand the natural world and not to think of silicon valley as being something very unnatural because Mm. it's still part of human thinking and actually if we can bring silicon valley back into the natural valley then maybe we can solve more problems
0: yeah um when you look at any kind of sort of you look at the headquarters of Apple or Google or any of these things they do put thought into the architecture because they've got the money and they do put thought into the landscaping as well which is stunning in my experience they don't put a huge amount of thought into biodiversity Um, it's more an aesthetic form of nature than it is of anything else I think what I've enjoyed about here is there are certain wild patches left to grow and seasonally the backdrop to these pieces changes like even yeah. today when i've been i mean i went all the way around both oh, the well, lakes yeah. I've, I've i've done it all i've, I've ticked all the <laughs> boxes. and and even just seeing a few things from different angles at different times of the day getting rained on in some yes, instances yeah. and the sun shining in others you do realize that this is a changing gallery and enables you to readdress what a what a piece is
1: absolutely and hepworth who um we have the beautiful family of man online that's the longest line we've had here felt that her work could breathe in the open air. So she was, her and Ma were both very intent on having their works, not only in an open air setting, but a natural setting. Mm -hmm. And and that's something I've learned a huge amount from Peter, our founding director, and Claire, who's our director of programme, is, you know, something might look great today, but when the leaves come back in, or when the leaves are falling, or when the leaves are a different bright orange, is that going to work with that orange sculpture? So all of these considerations. And we have kind of ridiculous conservation considerations as well, so there are great crested newts here mm-hmm. and we can't move sculptures at a certain time of the year because of the migratory paths. I don't know if you noticed the, awesome. the ha-ha. So there's a ha-ha that runs through the estate. Yeah. And I don't know if you noticed when you go up to the restaurant here, there's um, a little tunnel in the ha-ha. Okay. And that's a great crested newt Path. crossing. Awesome. <laughs> under the road. And there are protected species of bats. And so all of these considerations. So we had a sound work by James Webb, another South African artist, who I um, got to know through our connection at NYROX in South Africa, a brilliant sculpture initiative over there. And he introduced the sound of jackals. So it was a sound work, and it was the sound of jackals at NYROX in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And we had to work really carefully with the local wildlife trust and really is this going to... Impact on the indigenous species? Absolutely. Is this going to be detrimental? So we came up with, um, you know, that it would only play during the day and then it would be cut off during the night. And then he um, created a site-specific commission, James Webb, which was, he rightly realised that all of the trees on the estate are the true inhabitants of this park Mm -hmm. and that we are passing through. And he imagined the conversations that those trees might have and created um, quite a theatrical, actually, Sound work that was around the woodland. So, as you were walking through the woodland, you'd get these whispered conversations, and some of them were a little bit sinister and a little bit, you know, you kind of along the lines of you think you own this place, but we let you live among us and yeah. stuff like that. Which was, um I mean, it was a great piece of conceptual artwork, but also I had the real privilege of hearing Tim Ingold speak here when. We did the David Nash exhibition and he, com- he forever changed the way that I think of this place and I think of woodlands and where he talks about, you know, a woodland floor is not a surface, it's a living ecosystem. And there's research that trees communicate with mm-hmm. each other and obviously it's not the way we necessarily communicate, but no. I think James's... Sometimes a better way. Possibly. Slower, but um, James's piece tapped into that science as well and kind of made people... It startled quite a few people who... A regular visitors or our staff even who walk around here um, take the trees for granted as part of the furniture, but they're alive and they're,
0: well, they're... And there's some stunning examples. We were originally trying to record this interview down by the oldest tree on site. Yes. Um, which you said had been struck by lightning and, yep. and, and is out front of where they used to slaughter the deer. And yes. It's.
1: And that has witnessed a huge amount of history. So they think it's at least 500 years old. And there, you know, there's legend that Henry VIII spent a night here in the estate. Whether that's true or not, he, that tree will know potentially. And this area, um, this land, actually, I've learned recently in researching a project with um, Katrina Palmer, which is a horse jump project. So there's a horse and rider come and jump the horse jump. But uh, so I was researching about the equestrian history of the estate. Mm-hmm. And this part of the world was described as wasteland in the Doomsday Book because William the Conqueror quelled an uprising in Yorkshire so severely. It was described as the closest thing to a genocide this country has ever seen. And it was called the Harrying of the North, and there are contemporary accounts of refugees from this area going up to Scotland and down to Coventry. You know, that kind of terminology brings it right up to now and contemporary thinking and what's happening in the world. And um, it was... The devastation was so complete that there wasn't really life here, human life here for seven years. And then it became this estate, so William the Conqueror gave this estate to one of his faithful knights, Albert de Lacey. And so I was trying to, introducing this artwork with a horse and rider kind of echoes the sound of probably centuries before cars of activity of
0: refugees coming through the territory well
1: potentially or just the the lady of the manor so yeah. diana bowman it's got a quite an interesting ownership history in that the landscape we managed was laid out by thomas wentworth in the 1730s through to 1760s and he'd done the grand tour of europe so the formal terrace with the yew tree and the niche for mm-hmm. statuary his son refused to get married he had eight illegitimate children Apparently a lot of the kids in the village look like him as well. He seems to have been a bit of a rogue.
0: How many villagers and landowners can claim that kind of heritage?
1: Um, And there's a letter from his sisters saying you must settle down and get married, being very disrespectful to the family and our reputation. And he said, I've not time for this. I'm going to build myself a lake big enough for Jonah and the whale. So the lakes were hand dug by Irish labourers. And then when he died, his illegitimate daughter Diana Beaumont inherited, and nobody knows why, of all the illegitimate children, she had inherited there is one theory it was because she made a commitment to improving the estate and the grounds she was actually became quite a recognized botanist and calcutta botanical gardens were sending seeds here and to Kew. Okay. and the the more historic tree planting that's evident here so there's a lot of self-seeded trees that have mm-hmm. grown up but the historic tree design was hers and she had trees imported from all over the world. Well, there's
0: an amazing array. I think I found a redwood down in one section of it. there's yeah and what's kind of wonderful is you've got some cedars down near that which, which have colors that rival Damien Hurst's vibrant yeah. reds on his. I mean the wildlife is is holding its own again.
1: No, it is and it's um, it is a not completely unique in the world for that, but certainly I mean I think we are the largest sculpture park in Europe. But the fact that it has this rich heritage, the artists, every artist that you kind of explain the history of the estate to Mm -hmm. picks a different aspect that's inspirational to them. Yeah, so Diana, what I find amazing about that is she knew she wouldn't live to see it. She did that for us. Mm -hmm. She did that for here and now.
0: I was up at Castle Howard the other day and I think there were three Lord Howards that went through that estate before the castle was even finished. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, they weren't necessarily doing it for the people. They were doing yeah. it for themselves and for their egos. But um, it's still astounding to do something that you won't see in your lifetime. I think you kind of hope that modern politicians might be able to take that on board.
1: Well, it seems to be more of a four or five year cycle, doesn't it, really, yeah. at the moment. And I think, you know, just slow thinking is a very, it's not even outdated. It's just we've outgrown it, I suppose. You know, that there's a lot of the Rebecca Solnit book about walking. There's a lot of philosophers and people of different cultures who think you think at the pace of walking mm-hmm. and you know we're, we're moving our physical bodies around so much quicker constantly all the time that must be doing something to our thinking
0: Do you think that's why we're finding nature so interesting at this point in in time politics being so quick of having a five year cycle if you yeah. will and nature like the trees out there who've seen Henry VIII yeah. they live at a much slower rate they don't have the same I pressures think,
1: um, I think perhaps people are waking up to how precious the natural world is and that it's not just ours for the taking, that we are part of it. And if we pollute one area of it, it's going to come back to haunt us. And in fact, the earliest recognised naturalist is from Wakefield, Charles Waterton, who lived at Walton Hall, and he... Um, so David Attenborough has done quite a lot of work around mm-hmm. his collection. And he was one of the first people in the world to realise that the pollution in the river further upstream was causing oh, damage. So. Yeah. Um, and he created what is now recognised as the world's first nature reserve. Um, and so, you know, there's quite a strong tradition around here, I suppose, locally. But I think hopefully people are realising the physical benefits of spending time in nature and actually your own personal well-being.
0: Do you you think artists see that before (laughs) normal people in the best (laughs) comments? Whether Um, they're Henry Moore roaming around with a sheep sketchbook, whether they're Elizabeth Frink staring at small boys on horses, or whatever it is.
1: I think um, not all artists. So artists find their media, you know, some artists quite Mm -hmm. urban-based practised. But, yeah, Moore said that it was the job of artists to teach people how to see nature. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely something that he felt very strongly about. And I think works. I think that translates through the experience. And I think maybe what makes an artist, I don't know whether every child is born an artist and some just manage to stick it out or whether there are some exceptionally talented people that will be artists regardless of whatever circumstances they're in. But certainly they seem to have, from my experience of working, for example, with Andy Goldsworthy and David Nash, is. A very particular sensibility. So, Andy, when I was working with him, would know when the weather system was going to change or which direction the wind was coming from. And that's perhaps years and years of experience of being out there. But also, and he talks very interestingly about his relationship to the materials of the natural world. So, he spent years when he first graduated understanding the leafness of leaf or the sandness of sand, okay. and then that's only once he built that knowledge he was able to do the much larger, more ambitious pieces that we have here.
0: Learn the smaller elements of construction, then work your way up to the top, I guess. Yeah. So going back to you a bit, what what were your earliest memories of nature and the outside world?
1: I think just, I mean, growing up in a rural situation and going, we had friends who had farms nearby, so that's not necessarily the natural world, that's more the agricultural, I suppose, but... Um, yeah, i been very aware of the swallows when they arrive back each summer and grass beneath my feet. Did you and
0: appreciate it at the time?
1: I think I was taught to. So I was taught by my father particularly. He, um, So my dad got thrown out of Bambi when he was a child for shouting at the man who <laughs> shot Bambi's mother. And that he, was a, straight he was a very shy man. So for that to... <laughs> um, so he had an intense affection for the natural world and respect for the natural world so
0: even the and, animated natural even world.
1: the animated natural he was only small at the time but um so he would be so excited to see a hair or um so for me it's like seeing a celebrity in fact mm-hmm. more more delightful than seeing a celebrity perhaps to see um so i've only seen two hairs here at wise but it's it's like um an insight into a whole other world it's kind of extraordinary
0: do you ever come here earlier than you need to just to see the day start Um,
1: no, but I do take a walk in a park near where I live before I come here. Um, and I saw, I've never seen a woodpecker. i see. I've heard them, I've heard them here and I've heard them in my local park. And the other day I saw a a woodpecker come out of its hole in the tree and then it's two young fledglings following it. And that was like, that made my week.
0: Gorgeous. Yeah. Well, they are, uh, the Avian world's, uh, woodcarvers.
1: They are no, but let you know you laugh. But Moore said he wanted to work with materials like nature did, so he wanted to um, carve stone in the way that wind and rain would have done. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a totally. And and you see woodpecker, and then you think about having seen pictures of how its brains kind of protected from all the you know and the impact. The, yeah, all of the incredible stuff that. Happens in nature that's evolved through nature. That well, the
0: technological advancements that they've done to achieve to be able to wrap abso- their head against absolutely. the branch.
1: but that every every creature and every plant has something extraordinary. The, f- the fact that a mushroom can kill you is kind of.
0: I I took <laughs> uh, an Instagram worthy picture of a mushroom earlier. Yeah, as you do, yeah. bent down on there's the floor. A load a going lot really there. There's, there's loads of here. fungi around here. Yeah. Um that, that's something that i'm starting to get more and more interested into is mushrooms but that's, that's me not you
1: well one of no one of my colleagues actually has been on a lot of courses and she does public walk and talks around fungi and she mostly survives by foraging here okay. and near where she lives and you know the food she makes is amazing um but yeah you have to know what you're doing with yeah, mushrooms if you go very badly fungi. wrong yeah. or
0: surprisingly well yeah has anyone ever camped over
1: here no so we I mean, the students used to live here. So the history of the state is it was sold to the local government in 1948. And there was a very enlightened head of learning for the West Riding called Alec Clegg. And he started an arts teacher training college in the mansion house. And this was with a view that art could rebuild the world Mm -hmm. after the war. And he was inspired in part by a book by Herbert Reid, who was from Leeds, who was a real champion of Moran Hepworth. And this book, Education Through Art, that was written in the middle of the war in forty three, said precisely our philosophy that if you teach a child creatively, they'll be a fully rounded human being. And I hadn't realised until about 10 years ago how a lot of threads of my life have joined together. So I went to an Alec Clegg school. I then went to University in Liverpool, where I was taught by David Thistlewood, who was an authority on Herbert Reed. Mm-hmm. And then coming back here. Um, and so there's this kind of... And actually my professor taught... An alternative history of modern and contemporary art which was rooted in Yorkshire which obviously appealed to me but it because the the conventional art historical teaching was that the center of modern art was in Paris with Miro and Picasso it then moved to New York after sure. the war with the likes of the abstract expressionists and Jackson Pollock and my professor was quite um, a bit of a conspiracy theorist but he had evidence to back it up that this supposed move to New York was funded by the CIA covertly and that Clement Greenberg and other art, art historians... Were Do you all. believe it? There, there is evidence that they um, did see abstract expressionism as part of soft politics in the Cold War and they did covertly fund... They set up agencies that funded arts and um, art critics. Mm. And so my professor taught that actually more in Hepworth and a Yorkshire rooted Herbert Reed, uh, so as an art critic created this other alternative view of modern contemporary art i don't subscribe to that wholly but what was really amazing about that was it opened up the possibility of there being infinite numbers of histories and narratives mm-hmm. and that there wasn't necessarily a hierarchical um
0: it didn't have to be rooted in one particular place whether it be paris or new york it could be exactly it could be, it could be in yorkshire it could be in castle well there's certainly something that was happening here around this time and i mean it's yeah. not just having spent the day surrounded by barbara hetworth and by um, by more that has done that, but it's there's, there was something in the air. Yes. And you can see certain commonalities between their work. Yes. I mean, I personally don't know how much they sort of inf- influence each other, but...
1: They they were part... So, actually, they went to... I believe they definitely studied together in Leeds. I think they then studied in London at the same time, and they were definitely friends. They were part mm. of a group of friends. Um, but they were pretty supportive, actually, rather than competitive. Sure. But then it was during the war that they kind of set their separate lives up, so Hepworth going to St Ives, and Hepworth always said actually that she would still come back to Yorkshire if it wasn't for the light so um, her oh, move okay. to St Ives was her stay in St Ives was really predicated on the light that she she found there
0: oh, That's beautiful. Um, the one thing that I found stunning looking at their stuff today is the fact that almost all of the work has holes through it which yes. show the landscape behind it Yeah, sheep or no sheep there, but you get it it automatically opens up the situation as well as the piece, yeah. which is which is why this sort of works so well here, I guess.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we benefit from a landscape that has horizon lines and that has, you know, different aspects you can frame. And the family of man with Hepworth is the way that the patina has been done on that. And we are um, really fortunate that that was recently fully restored by Laura Davis, who's an expert in Hepworth patinas. And For
0: those that don't know, patina's the colouring that's the colouring of the, the bronze. bronze to make it.
1: So the family of man has a rich brown exterior surface, and then its interior surfaces like tend bluey, to be more green, of like, like a sea. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Azur. that yes, very good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> My A level art teacher would be proud. He learned four words. <laughs> um, and that, in a very cold winter day becomes quite. Um, An alienating work is not a work you necessarily want to interact with because it becomes quite not hostile but it owns that space. I saw it
0: in a glaring sunshine today, and it's a really welcome moment. Exactly, and the bronze
1: becomes more golden, and you feel you kind of want to. Although
0: that said, you view it from one direction, it was welcoming from the other. It seemed a little bit starker, colder even just today. So. And they
1: definitely own that space. Though. That is oh. their hillside. They've been there over 30 years. And, you know, it's a bit like talking about the trees earlier and them inhabiting the landscape. Those sculptures inhabit that space. Um And Hepworth always said that she wanted her sculptures to be pattered like a loved one. Mm-hmm. But we now have over half a million visitors a year. So this is not something we can still let people do there are some sculptures that we encourage people to touch in the open air and we have handling materials in the in the resources space but um, it's quite difficult to dissuade young children particularly there's a piece um, where they want to go and curl up and actually sit within the sculpture Mm -hmm. and there was I remember we were Unloading. We did a Juan Miro exhibition about five years ago now, um, and there's so Juan Miro described his sculptures as being like monsters, mm-hmm. and he felt so he would work with often natural materials that he would gather from walking around the landscape round his home in Palma, Mallorca, where he moved to during the war, and so there's a piece which is inspired by an almond, and then it becomes this quite cute sort of almost ET-ish looking sure. figure. And when we were unpacking it, a small child broke away from their parents and just ran toward the sculpture and hugged it. Oh. Um, and their parents were like absolutely horrified. But Miro's two grandsons were here, and they were just like that's what it's supposed so to be. So moved that, um, that that child could have that response just immediately to that piece.
0: The only thing that I can think of that has merited that response in adults and children is trees. Yes, people absolutely. People like to touch them. People hold them. they mean something to them spiritually. And occasionally when they get old and too precious, we box them off and people can't touch them. Yes. Um, which is sad.
1: Yes. I mean, it's, there is so much, I mean, I, I want to call it magic, but it's not magic. It's just stuff we don't understand yet that happens out there, isn't there? Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine this place without trees. I mean, what a different experience it would be. The,
0: the one thing that I particularly liked about this place is that pretty much every single exhibit feels like it's on its own in that place. It's not, it's not overcrowded. Yeah. There, there is sometimes you see a relationship quite deliberately between pieces, but yeah. more often than not, they get to hold their own and the site is large enough. yes. Um, So how often do you rotate things out?
1: So we think of the open air spaces as being eight different exhibition spaces. Mm -hmm. The very formal areas around the Underground Gallery being the area which um, requires, I guess, the most intensive care. Mm -hmm. And then areas like the country park where the Henry Moors are, where the sheep roam, that's um, kind of a much lower maintenance from the terms of estate management, we try and change each of those spaces every three years so that there's something every six months or so okay. that's different for to visitors to come coming to about. see. And Peter, from the very beginning, was clear that we shouldn't become an open-air museum, so we don't really have a collection. Mm-hmm. Um, the only works we own are the pieces that are built into the fabric, really, like the James Troll Sky Space or the Sol And he also is Do very actively cautious. Do you avoid that, then? Yeah, he's also very mm-hmm. cautious about... Well, we d- we've never had the budget, for one thing, so our resources have always gone in temporary programming.
0: But also, I mean, I was asking in terms of, a lot of artists work with the location, the environment, yeah. to move it, warp it, distort it, so that piece can only be in one particular place. Mm. Do you avoid pieces like that, because they could never be permanent?
1: It would depend on the nature of the work. So the horse jump piece we have just done with Katrina Palmer is a site-specific some way site-specific piece here, but actually that could be adapted and it could travel. Sure. It tends to be only the pieces... I think even when a piece is site-specific, unless it's built into the physical structure of the place, there are, there are other places it could respond to. Mm-hmm. So Richard Serra said when his tilted arc was moved from Manhattan Plaza that to remove the work would be to destroy it. He felt very strongly about that type of site specificity. But um, I think that's quite rare that something could only be sure. so particular.
0: Um, you So you worked here originally as...
1: Uh... So I started as a volunteer. Mm-hmm. So having visited as a school kid and with my family, I then went away to university in Liverpool and I thought I would get to move somewhere really glamorous and overseas and then realised actually my dream job was right back um when you my doorstop. um and what's really nice about that as well is that I've grown to learn my family history and the village that I now live in, which is wasn't the one I grew up in, um, five or six hundred years ago were ancestors living there. So, you know, that I feel quite privileged to be able to feel quite so rooted in a place. Mm. Um and start to learn more about like the folk traditions of the area and the music. Are
0: there any particular folk traditions that you adhere to? Do you go out
1: <laughs> start
0: bollock naked on Midsummer Eve? And...
1: No. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a strong tradition. Um, but, so Anna Bowman, who um, was the head of learning here for many years, has taught me, and I forgot most of it, so don't ask me, Maybe. but she's taught me a lot about the folklores of the different trees. Okay. And then we had an artist called Hamali Bhuta on a residency from Bombay um, funded by Creative India, and she got talking to Anna and she began to learn about how uh, particular trees were used to ward off snakes and then her so her, her work evolved through that process. And she's create you might have noticed if you went up to Longside, she created a piece called Speed Breakers, where one of the elm trees had naturally fallen over. Mm-hmm. Um our technicians excavated some of the tree roots and then they were cast in bronze and then they were reintegrated among a lot of tree roots and a fir. Woodland up on Oxley okay. Bank, so you almost don't notice them. Um, but what she wanted and is happening is that as you walk over them, the the, the patina is becoming rubbed, and then you get this bronze that's starts to you shine just, on through. So you just you start to see it. that it's not quite right. Not You're quite getting natural. that
0: with the with the panonia as well because they're yes. so well cast. You, yes. I had to touch one of them to double check that yeah. it wasn't a real tree. And the Anna
1: Galaccio, I don't know if you saw the Anna Galaccio, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful cast, and then that has. Um, bronze ceramic apples on it and um, what's nice about the galaccio piece as well is we've been able to locate it in what would have been the historic um fruit growing part of the estate as well oh, okay. so there are espaliered fruit trees around the bothy wall which uh-huh. is the area that when it does sunshine in yorkshire gets the most sun
0: glorious mm-hmm. um so in terms of the pieces that you have In terms of the artists that you've asked to create work for the park, what do you remember? What have been the ones that have moved you the most? I think
1: Katrina Palmer's, um, because it's such—it's quite a quiet work when you first encounter it, but it's so layered, and it was a co-commission with fourteen eighteen now. Um, who were kind of tasked by the government to commemorate or mark the first world war Mm. and the way they chose to do that was working with contemporary artists so rather than static memorials it became a much more immersive and experiential program of activity and we were invited to commemorate the work of the first aid nursing yeomanry who were incredible well still are an incredible group of women who self-organized in the first world war and went to help soldiers on the front line the British army didn't want them so they went to help the Belgian army Mm -hmm. and they were initially horseback nurses and they had done demonstrations of rescuing men from the front line at the Festival of Empire in 1911 Um, and at that Festival of Empire there was a song called The Enchantress which was sung by Clara Butt Mm -hmm. and Katrina did a lot of research in the archives of the nurses and created this artwork which is a horse it's a coffin horse jump and its construction, it's reminiscent of the First World War trenches. Okay. And then the text that's painted on it uh, from the nurse's diary, and particularly on the back, is Nothing Special Happened, which one of the nurses wrote quite often, even if she'd rescued people sure. from the front line. And Katrina was very interested in how the First World War coincided with the kind of rise of the women's movement and the emancipation of some women of a certain class and getting the vote. And so she sees this as kind of a leap for women in the 20th century and every now and then, a few times a month, the tannoys in the trees announce the arrival of the horse and rider on site through a performance of the Enchantress, which is broadcast, which is very evocative of a particular era of that era of the First World War. And then the horse and rider do the jump, and then they disappear.
0: They just do it the once.
1: Just do it the once, and then they disappear.
0: Always a female rider. Yeah. I can't
1: um, a go then. No. It's pretty high. It's an Olympic standard jump. I'll give it a go. <laughs> might keep you on the you might have to wear a wig. <laughs> yeah. Um and what um through that project I was introduced to a man called Gary Barlow, who's not the take-that singer, but a horse jump builder who um has built horse jumps on this estate before it became YSP. Mm-hmm. There used to be a question event here. And so he had this whole other history of his perception of this estate. And it's introduced me to the equestrian eventers who are this incredible group of women. Um, and I was walking down with one on their horse and they were saying, you must, you know, we, we've been talking on our Facebook group and we think you're mad here what you do here. And then she paused for a bit and she went, you probably think we are. I was like, yeah, you know, yeah. There's less risk of death really with what I'm doing. But then... An oh, no, you
0: could be crushed by a Henry Moore.
1: Not with our risk assessments. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're kidding. Um, but, um, but a parallel project which my colleague Rachel Massey developed was Leap of Faith, and this was equine, she's always wanted to work with equine assisted therapy, okay. which was not something I was familiar with. But this is a way of um, working with horses, with people who've been through trauma, to recalibrate and give them, it, well, a form of therapy.
0: It's, a, it's about relationships, as I understand it. I think so. Realising that things have pulses, feelings, and
1: it's, oh. And in that dynamic, the horse is the one who is afraid. So we are the, the, you know, we are the hunter, mm-hmm. they're the prey animal, and so that puts. So Rachel developed this project for a group of women in vulnerable circumstances, including women who'd been trafficked, and then worked with a group analyst. And I think that that shows the power of an artwork to be a catalyst for positive um, social
0: change. Yes, on an individual and a cumulative level.
1: Absolutely. And Katrina was part of that group, so Rachel was very clear it should not be a hierarchical group. The participants were not labelled victim or artist, they were just women in a group environment. And Katrina said that in some respects that project fulfilled and realised her intentions for the artwork as well as, if not better, than the artwork itself. And I think that's where, going back to thinking about what is our place in society, we are places where the extraordinary can happen um, and create a new way of thinking perhaps or encourage a way of thinking that there isn't space for in the rest of the world.
0: Horses are a fascinating creature in terms of looking at society and class, I find.
1: Yes.
0: Um I'm reading a wonderful book by Tim Pierce called The, the Horseman at the moment. Okay. And it looks at uh, basically a young boy who works for his father who looks after the horses on a large estate. So there's okay. the hunt and then yes. the people who look after those horses and then there are farmers who look after the horses that plow the fields and provide the food for the estate and yeah. the there's the upper-class horses and the lower-class horses. Yes. There's the upper-class horsemen horse. and the lower-class horsemen. Yeah. And to be honest, in this day, that still exists in a way. It, to be, I, I can horse ride because I grew up in the New Forest, but yes. I would just sound posh, but I'm not. <laughs> um, but it is to see in a, a three-day event or whatever, you, you, there is normally a class-based distinction to that person. And
1: There's an amazing artwork I saw at the Liverpool Biennial by Mohammed Barassa. Wow. Which is, I think it's, I can't remember which city is. It's a city in America. It could be Detroit. I'm not sure. Where, um, just like you were talking about, it tends there's um, a community of young men of perhaps working class or not even in working class situations who have horses, mm-hmm. and they they kind of dress them up and they. Create their outfits for them. These very flamboyant, and then they have competitions. And I read as well that I think there's um, like a city stable maybe in a big housing estate in Brixton, which has yeah. kind of reduced social problems. Most of the young people who mm-hmm. are caring for those horses.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've got a huge amount of respect for city farms in yeah. general. I yeah. think they're absolutely astounding places. Um, Normally, they've just got a huge rabbit in them. But um, <laughs> even that's better than nothing. Like even in, in York, yesterday morning, I was woken up by a couple going around on a horse and trap.
1: Yeah. And it
0: wasn't, unlike most things in York, a tourist trick. No, it no. was actually a form of transport. And you only have to go through Harlow to see um, travellers' horses on the roundabout to know that they still there are still certain different ways in which horses permeate through different human social classes.
1: And there's something, isn't there, about the idea of the traveller? So there's common land around here in the sculpture park and the horses remain there and then they, uh, the travellers come with the, their fares mm. and they move around. And I think there's something about... I think people are a little bit afraid of that, that alternative lifestyle. And
0: Well, we put order on everything, so anything that doesn't conform to that would mildly terrify us. Yes. Which is why this place is a wonderful place, because we get things out of a gallery and we put it into a gallery without walls, etc. Yes, cetera.
1: absolutely.
0: Um, what's next for you? Do you know what, your, what are your upcoming projects?
1: Upcoming projects are... Working with, hopefully, on a Nikita Samphal show, which will look at her work with animals. So she has done, she did do a lot of sculptures and drawings of animals that really demonstrate a huge joy in the natural world. So Mm -hmm. that's perfect for what we've just been talking about.
0: How is that going to form itself? What what kind of So that
1: will be an indoor exhibition in our new Western Gallery, probably, and potentially some open-air works as well. We already have the Buddha piece by Nicola Sanford, which is a beautiful mosaic, um, which quite often you'll see young children sitting in front of. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have an ongoing partnership with Selfridges, so we're just working around the future programme for that as well.
0: Very exciting. OK, there are three questions that I ask everyone who comes yeah. on the podcast. Um, have you prepped them? Do you know what I'm going to say? No. no. Wonderful. Even better. OK, <laughs> first question. If you could go for a walk... Yorkshire Sculpture Park, not included in the world right now. Where would it be?
1: I was very fortunate last year to do a walk around Georgia O'Keeffe's Ghost Ranch in Santa Fe, mm-hmm. um, and that was one of the most uplifting experiences. So potentially that, and also my good friend Lisa lives out there, so it'd be an opportunity to see her. Why was it so uplifting? Because I've never experienced a landscape of that scale, where you, as far as you could see, there was very little human intervention and it kind of put our transitory life in in perspective um and yeah it was just stunning and it was hot but there was snow on the ground and it was yeah quite extraordinary
0: stunning um question two should we colonize the moon
1: huh no, we should not colonise the moon, although I was just reading the front page of The Sun yesterday that apparently there are micro pigs on the moon. I don't know where that story <laughs> came from. They're I didn't, not micro pigs. I didn't finish reading it.
0: They're tardigrades, so <laughs> they're, they're otherwise known as water bears or water piglets, and they're tiny <laughs> tiny microorganisms that can potentially hold the cure for cancer and they can be frozen, live in zero gravity, and they're amazing. Well, the idea of little micro pigs <laughs> that have been exported from offices in Los Angeles onto the moon sounds like a wonderful idea. It didn't idea.
1: seem in my <laughs> logic that they could have survive very long if that was the case um no we can't we can't just keep moving on with like a slash and burn mentality we have to take responsibility for where we are Mm -hmm. um and fix it
0: did you read the other day uh that the moon landing site of apollo 11 is about to be protected as i guess a national park or a area of outstanding national beauty or whatever but it will be preserved as a curated space
1: as a moon landing site yeah. that's quite arrogant for species to do that isn't it isn't it yeah <laughs> but it's,
0: i mean it's quite astounding i mean the ticket price alone is prohibitive
1: <laughs> richard branson on the Gatling. Yeah. exactly
0: um but yeah one day maybe we'll all get up there um question number three if you could bring back any species from extinction what would it be
1: I think what the frightening thing about that question is, the enormity of it, is there are so many species that have become extinct that we're not even familiar with. Mm-hmm. So I think was the latest one, was it the one of the rhinos died?
0: Yeah. Well, we lost our last male white rhino. Um, the rhinos in general are all basically screwed.
1: Yeah. So I will go with the most recent, but um, that as a symbol for all that went before. All that went
0: before. Wonderful, well we'll see if we can bring that back for you Thank you very much (laughs) Helen for talking to me, that's been wonderful
1: Thank you very much for asking me
0: If people want to come to the Yorkshire Sculpture Park Yes It is open
1: It's open every day except Christmas and Boxing Day and it's free entry to everything. We're just off Junction 38 of the M1 and there is a car parking which is basically your entrance fee for the entire day. I think it's about £12 a day.
0: And if they want to know more about the venue, you've got a Twitter page and a website? Yeah, website,
1: website um, really helpful information on the website, Instagram page, Twitter page.
0: And if they're particularly interested in you, is there anything they can follow online?
1: Uh, yeah, so on Instagram, just Helen Phoebe and Twitter. Wonderful. And I tend to do some talks here as well, so keep an eye out and in London.
0: Great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Thank brilliant. you. That interview with the truly inspirational Helen Phoebe was recorded back in August, which couldn't seem further away if it tried. The past is indeed a very, very different country. Um, I'm currently out walking the dog, actively avoiding people. It's the 21st of March, and at the time of recording this outro... Wide open outside spaces seem to be one of a few solaces left, so use them whilst you can. With that in mind, the outside spaces at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park are indeed still open. They're also still planning on a big music competition in April, but please check the website before turning up and join their e-bulletin for information on all their upcoming events and competitions. My editor and I at Trees A Crowd are now working from our respective homes, so we've had to postpone a few of our intended upcoming recordings, but we will get those done once on the other side of this pandemic. Until then, I've plenty of unreleased interviews recorded on my travels over the past few months. We have interviews from Dublin, from Belfast, a few more from Yorkshire, and even one from Oregon about the largest trees in the world. In the meantime, Please do what you can to mitigate the spread of this virus, whether it be by supporting those on the front line or just keeping your distance from others to help flatten the curve. Do what you can. For, in the words of Dr. Helen Phoebe, we are places where extraordinary happens. Thank you for listening and keep safe. Bye bye. Oh, the oak and the
1: ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh.